I spent you know the better part of, of almost you know 15 years in comp management and probably seen a thousand comp plans, right? And I, I think a lot of companies don't get it right, right? Because to your point, you need to incent the right behaviors, right? And if people are not incented on the right behaviors, they're not going to be aligned with corporate goals or departmental goals. Today, I'm joined by Kerry Sikalski, who is president of Pre-Sales Mastery. Kerry, how are you? I'm glad I got that one on the second take. I'm great, George, and uh, no worries. It's, uh, I've been living that my whole life, so uh, you, you did much better than most people do. All right. Awesome. Well, I like to think that I do because I'm actually a musician. I've been playing guitar since I was 11, so I like to think that I can hear things and then like recite them pretty quickly but uh but sometimes i get mixed up there so uh yeah well why don't you take a quick second to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your career background how'd you get into pre-sales sure yeah great question uh so uh i'm uh a carrie skolsky based out of toronto canada i uh spent most of the last decade actually uh being based out of southeast florida um but moved back here a couple years ago uh, I got into pre-sales in a really sort of odd way. I, uh, I came out of biz school and got into strategy consulting for banks and brokerages and uh, then got into sort of an entrepreneurial streak. I started up a dot-com in the late 90s, ran a sports management company. And then I was, as I was winding down and selling that company, uh, a buddy of mine was founding uh, a new startup called Verison Software in the incentive comp management space. And said, why don't you come work for me? And I was sort of looking for my next gig and said, yeah, sure, I'll try it out. And I was Verisense, I think 10th or 11th employee and I was their first pre-sales consultant. I knew nothing about formal sales or software and uh, sort of learned on the fly. It was an awesome experience. Um, so that's sort of how I got into it. And I, uh, Verison was an awesome rocket ride. I, I did that for sort of an individual contributor for about four years, made presence club every year. And then I became the pre-sales manager at Verisent. And then in 2012, IBM bought us and my team grew from 10 to 30 mm. in six months. That was an interesting experience. And uh, learned how to become sort of a, a much more globally focused leader, which was really neat. And then uh, I, I left IBM, worked uh, with a couple other smaller software firms. And then two years ago, decided to get back into my sort of entrepreneurial roots and started up pre-sales mastery, recognizing that there really was a, a dearth of offerings out there around sort of pre-sales and demo coaching. Uh, lots of sales coaches out there, but very few people that were doing it for demos and mm. thought that I had you know spent the last decade and a half both being a, a, a pre-sales contributor and leading both pre-sales teams and sales enablement teams and thought this would be something that uh, I could add some good value to the market. I got to ask you just because I haven't done it myself. I've ran small teams as like founder. I think the biggest we ever got my last startup was about 12 people. And I was pulling my hair out there because I couldn't actually do any work. And it felt like sort of deal with everyone's uh, shenanigans. How did you go from like that small team to 30 and anything that sort of stood out there around that experience and helped you get through that scaling? 
Yeah, it was time. I mean, I, look, we were really fortunate in that the, the two founders of Verisync were, were salespeople at their core. And so it was a very sales focused company across the board. Like the, the company's focus and DNA was all sales. Like every department in the company was really centered around enabling sales to actually close that deal. Right. We were a very revenue led organization. So the beginning was really interesting, right? Especially I was sort of the first pre-sales person and we were doing everything. I remember our first client or prospect visit, site visit, uh, was a big insurance firm. And we were in this tiny little space in some office tower and it, our, our office was a joke. And we spent all night unloading and setting up rented furniture that we rented for a day to make it look like we had 40 people in our office of 12. And uh, you know, putting plants up and pictures and whatever. And so I, I think it was really neat because you, you really need to wear, like you say, a lot of hats and and put out a lot of fires. But I, I think if everybody sort of got the same vision, you can get there. Um, it becomes obviously a lot easier as you start to scale out. Um, but you need repeatable processes, right? You know, bringing people on, especially in pre-sales, is tough. It's it's very time consuming. It's hard to find good people, uh, and getting them enabled is a long process. I mean, I think. Consensus did a, 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 a survey about uh, SE workloads, and they said the average onboarding time for SEs was over four months. I think that's low. I think mm. for organizations is probably more than six months. Um, and so you really need to be able to sort of plan in advance and make sure you're systematizing your uh, your your sales playbooks and your approaches and the demo assets, so that when people do join, you can get the ground running. Do you think that that onboarding is so long because of the technical aspect, like learning the product, or is it more sort of meshing the technical acumen with the qualitative, you know, salesy sales acumen? Yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's more the latter, right? If you think about the three things I always looked for when I was trying to hire somebody, there's three different skill sets I was evaluating. One was, do they have the technical chops? Right. And in a lot of cases, it was the technical chops in relation to my solution. Right. Like, did they understand my technology? Right. Or the underlying technologies that we use that we're, we're going to enable them to be successful to build out our demo models and improve the concepts. The second was, do they understand our space? Right. Do they know anything about the sales performance management and incentive comp management space? Because that arguably is going to teach me take a lot longer to teach. Right. Because they have to really be an expert. Right, because we all know that in, in pre-sales to be successful, you've got to be consultative. You've got to be that trusted expert. And so, if you don't know your stuff and you're not up to to speed on, you know, the latest trends and how they're going to be successful, it's tough to make that sale by making the connection with the audience. Um, and so, that's the second one. And then the third one is just sales skills. Right to your point about you know making sure they're selling on value. Right, they're not just demo dollies mm. they're getting out there and you know, showing a bunch of features uh, and throwing as many darts at the wall and hoping something sticks, they've got to be true value sellers and be able to, you know, relate to that that prospect and, and explain to them how you are going to get them to the promised land and make their life easier. Yeah, it makes total sense. Well, let's talk a little bit about compensation. You've had quite a bit of experience in that whole sort of uh, space. You know, what is the market missing around compensation regarding pre-sales professionals? Because, you know, I, I, I think compensation in my experience is, is absolutely something that is 
tied to performance. You know, I was just chatting with um, a friend of mine and I was helping him set up a CRM and a sales process at his law firm. And he, you know, I dug in and I realized that he wasn't actually compensating his reps for appointments, you know, the SDRs for appointment setting. And I was like, what's going to incentivize them to actually get these things done in a timely manner. Right. And so what's your take on it? Like, what is the market missing? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Right. So, you know, I spent, you know, the better part of, of almost you know 15 years in comp management and probably seen a thousand comp plans. Right. And I, I think a lot of companies don't get it right. Right. Because to your point, you need to incent the right behaviors. Right. And if people are not incented on the right behaviors, they're not going to be aligned with corporate goals or departmental goals. And they're going to do what's going to maximize, in a lot of cases, their earnings, which may be the wrong activities. Right. In a lot of cases, you're not even misaligned to, to their the corporate goals, but you're also, you know, you're paying them to do the wrong things. Right. And so I, I think one of the biggest challenges around pre-sales comp is I, I, I was shocked. I saw a stat recently that only a third of pre-sales people hold a quota, which is kind of mind-boggling to me when almost all pre-sales people would probably argue that they should be equals with their sales peers, right? It's one of the big struggles for pre-sales is having a seat at the table and being an equal partner in the sales cycle with your account executives. And yet, if you're not aligned in terms of your goals and objectives and compensation with those salespeople. It may not be the same amounts or the same levers or the same percentages or mixes, but if you don't have some sort of alignment in terms of how you're paid, then you're inherently going to have different goals and objectives than those other people will. And that's going to cause friction, right? Mm -hmm. You're not necessarily going to want to do the same things. And uh, it's challenging. I mean, there's a lot of reasons, I think, why pre-sales struggles a little bit more than sales in terms of assigning things like quotas. There are challenges around, you know, how many AEs and is each pre-sales person supporting, right? And do they, that, does that mean if I'm supporting three account execs, I'm holding three times the quota? Hmm. Maybe they are, maybe they aren't. Um, the biggest challenge in assigning a, a, a pre-sales person a quota is that what happens if I get stuck with a terrible territory or a terrible rep? Right. And now all of a sudden I can't even hit my numbers. Right. Because I'm stuck with this person. Mm. Right. And so you have to be, you have to think about lots of different ways to structure the team and allocate, you know, reps or pre-sales folks to the account execs to, to mitigate those concerns. Right. So maybe it isn't that you're, you know, assigned to just these three account execs. Maybe you cover all of the entire Eastern seaboard. Right. And so now you're working with seven different reps and you can work across all of them. Right, and you're spreading the risk uh, in, in ways like that. But I, I, I really strongly believe that you really should be motivating pre-sales people um, to be to want to perform individually and, and achieve as much as they can individually, um, and be rewarded for that. And I, I think the only the only other aspect I hear about why a lot of organizations push back on that is people want to have team-based components to their plans. Right. There's a there's there's definite arguments for team-based components. There's the situation I just mentioned where you, know, you get stuck in a crappy territory. There's a situation where you've got new people coming on board that probably, you know, we just talked about the fact it's going to take six months or longer to ramp someone up. Well, I'm not going to close any deals in the first six months. And 
do I really want to be on a commission plan for those first six months? And so maybe it's a guarantee for the first six months, right? Or I, if I'm on a team comp, then I'm spreading that risk around. If the team does better, I'm still going to get paid something. Uh, and then one of the other common arguments for that is enablement and, and sort of cross-team learning, right? Where the idea is if people are on a team-based comp plan, they're more likely to collaborate and help each other out. In my experience, my teams have always had individual-only plans, but if they weren't collaborative on their own within those plans, I probably would have introduced a team-based component. I just don't think you need a team-based component to comp to incent people to actually be collaborative and help and help their peers. If we focus on unpacking just a second the variable component, you know, this commission or quota is this tied to closed deals and how do you sort of balance between the effort that the AE uh, put forth the closing versus the SE and how do you figure out percentages I mean we still have to be you know profitable and like margins as an organization so I know this is generally something that folks are really sort of concerned with and I think one of the reasons why business owners although I do not agree that you don't incentivize sales reps um, or SEs in this case uh, poorly I, I definitely like to focus on making sure they're taken care of. But of, of course, as a business owner in the past, uh, you know, we really thought through this, right? We have investors who are, you know, on us about increasing margin and these sort of things. So how do you sort of think through that when you're putting these comp plans together? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, my, the simplest answer is, you know, rising waters floats all boats, right? And and we're, we're lucky in the software business. And then for the most part, We've, we've usually got pretty good margins, right? By selling software, right? Services, maybe not so much, but the actual software itself typically has pretty decent margins. And so you have the ability to potentially offer more commissions than you would in a, in a lower margin business. And I don't think it's a zero sum game where you say that you're going to cap at say 10% of whatever that sale is in the total commission you're going to pay it across everybody that touches that deal. I think that's sort of a short-sighted way to do it. I think there's there's ways where you want to actually pay more than that, right? Um, one of the nice things about having more people be on a leverage plan is that it actually allows you to scale your business better because you're putting more of that the the your compensation dollars um, into a variable component. Where if you don't hit those sales targets, you're not paying out those those dollars, right? If if thirty percent of my pre-sales teams on target earnings are in, in, in variable comp and I don't hit my numbers, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not outlaying as much. And so my profit's not hit as badly. If, I, if they're all salaried, whether I hit my number or not, I know I have that fixed cost, right? And so by having more people on leveraged plans, you actually allow yourself to, to improve the margin of business where the only time you're actually paying out a ton is if you're killing it and really selling a lot of stuff, which is a great problem to have, right? Most organizations would love to have that problem. So I think that's sort of a fundamentally different way to look at it, right? Is that, you know, most sales leaders you probably talk to would probably say, I want to have that problem. I want to be in a situation where, you know, my CFO is coming to me and saying, we're paying out too much in commissions, <laughs> right? It's like, well, that's because we're doing a kick-ass job, pardon my French, right? So I, I think that's that's a big part of it. Um, I think there's the typical lever in terms of getting back to your question around sort of determining how much to pay people based on how much they've contributed to the sales cycle. That's a hard topic, right? Because mm -hmm. 
the the jobs that a account exec will do and a, and a pre-sales professional will do sometimes they'll overlap in some respects but they are fairly different right and so it's hard to argue who ultimately has more value um you know provided to that sales cycle i you know as a pre-sales person biased i would argue in a lot of cases the pre-sales person is adding more value because we don't win that demo we don't have any chance mm. of that right? The demo is the single most important thing we're going to do to figure out whether we're going to win this deal or not, right? You know, the sales rep might, you know, not be great at negotiation. So maybe we discount a little bit more, we're still going to win the deal, right? Um, I, and and I'm, I'm insulting all sales reps here <laughs> for doing that. It's okay. I don't need to do that. <laughs> it is absolutely a partnership and the stuff they do, I never wanted to do, right? Like I never wanted to be the one that had to cold call and, you know, you know, call to keep bugging them. Why are you close the deal? And it's the end of quarter and please sign that kind of stuff. That's, that was never in my wheelhouse. Right. Um, I, I think it really is a partnership. Right. And so I'm not implying that the percentage should always be the same. In fact, I'd argue that, you know, the, the mix between base and variable for an account exec versus pre-sales is usually different. Right. Usually your account execs are more higher, higher leverage. They're you know, maybe 50, 50 or 60, 40 versus uh, an SE that might be 70, 30 or even 80, 20. Right. Um, and there's different types of roles in pre-sales too. Right. You may have, you know, a demo engineer who never even necessarily really gets in front of the client. They're just sort of the, the wizard uh, behind the curtain who's helping that SE build the POC that they're eventually going to create. You know, maybe they're on a 90, 10 plan. Mm. Right. And they're maybe they're holding an entire, you know, global number rather than just an individual deal number. Um, but there's there's lots of different mechanics and levers you can push and pull to make sure that you're incentivizing the people to do the right things and that they're motivated correctly. You know, I love the fact that you brought up the demo engineer because we've been doing a lot of research into that particular role and chatting with a bunch of demo engineers out there. And one thing that keeps coming to mind is is there a way to comp on the quality of the POC, right? If, if there's some sort of grading, you know, sort of model there, something to think about. I, I certainly haven't got it yet, uh, but, uh, and I frankly have never been in SC. I've always been on the other side, sure. either uh, prospecting or closing deals. Uh, but uh, I've been the one like bugging, hey, what's up? You know, I need to get you in here. Come on. Because I knew that was my secret weapon, sure. you know, once I could bring a, an SE in. But, you know, at the time, I'm, I'm just thinking of a specific instance, the SEs were like spread thin, right? So they were just like, they, they didn't, they didn't uh, have a, a good number of them and they were either building out POCs for the larger accounts. And then us in the mid market, I'm thinking about this very specific organization, you know, we barely got their attention. So uh, just something to think about, like, you know, how do we actually create a model that will increase the quality of the demo just because, you know, you can get as deep or as thin as, as you, as you, you know, have time for. Yeah, it's a great question. I, and, and I, I don't know that it's easy to objectively measure that, right? Like I, I, like what is the quality, right? I think you can, you know, you could argue that the quality maybe isn't even as important as the outcome, right? Um, and, you know, outcomes are what drive everything in sales, right? Did you win the deal or not? Did you get the technical win or not? Were you selected vendor or not? Um, and, you know, I, I, I would argue that there are people out there, there, there are great pre-sales people out there who built, you know, a, a fraction of what some other ones would have to build to be a success, to deliver a successful demo, right? And so, 
inherently saying, you know, because they built less, does that necessarily mm. mean that their their POC was lower quality? I don't know. I don't, mm. you know, maybe objectively it just has less in it, but if it got the same outcome, then do we really care? Yeah. Um, so that's that's a, that is a it's an interesting question. So I guess what comes to mind is do they have the bandwidth to focus on those very specific sort of pain points that we know the prospect has, or are they just throwing out a, a more generic one, I guess is what comes to mind. And because they don't, again, have the bandwidth and they're spread thin, or the, the AE didn't do a good job of, uh, of, of really being able to uh, conduct discovery to surface those, uh, those insights for us, you know, for our team, right? So... Yeah, no, and it's a, a huge and, and super relevant point, right? That you know, most pre-sales teams are are resource constrained, right? And no one that I know ever always has enough time to build everything they want to build, yeah. right? And it was it was always a struggle. I mean, we when we were at Harrison IBM, we were it was an, an average of probably two weeks of build time per proof, proof of concept. It was massive, massive amounts of effort for every proof of concept, and we had one person in the team that did really custom code in the background for small things. But for the most part, it was each of the SEs were building their own stuff. And, you know, if we had the ability to either find a way to leverage either an individual or, or a technology that would allow us to get even, you know, 30 or 40% of the way there from, you know, from the and not have to start from scratch each time, that would have been an, an unbelievably massive win. I mean, we would have cut days out of our, our PLC time, which, not only improves our bandwidth, but also allows us to be more responsive and get back in front of the customer quicker, which is a good thing, right? So, So, Carrie, let's talk a little bit about what pre-sales is in the mid-market versus enterprise. Kind of like, what do they look like and and those key differences? Yeah, it's a a really good question. And it's funny because I, I think what I see now more often is it's not even necessarily a mid-market versus enterprise. It's, it's really is solution specific, right? I think that there's a big difference between solutions that really don't require a ton of customization in order to deliver an effective demo versus ones that do, um, where pre-sales is going to be more prevalent or less prevalent in the organization. If more, more customization to get that customer to a point where the demo is relevant for them, right, and relatable to them, um, you need more pre-sales to do that, right? You need more people to solve that problem versus if the solution is pretty, you know, it, it's pretty rigid and set out of the box and there's very little you're actually doing aside from a couple different configurations, then maybe you need a lot less work to actually configure that. And you see organizations where the account execs are the ones delivering those demos. And maybe there's just one demo engineer in the background similar to that individual I mentioned earlier is just doing for the really highly custom ones that here and there, they'll make a couple tweaks, but ultimately it's a it's an account exec that's delivering that. And so I think you see more of that sort of solution type sell in the mid-market necessarily. Um, enterprise tends to be more custom type of solutions, um, but you see them both mid-market and enterprise. I think it really is dependent on the solution itself. Awesome. Any sort of you know aspects or attributes of like a killer demo that stand out? Like when you see it, you're like, that's a killer demo. Or maybe you did it and you're like, that's a killer demo. Yeah, I, th- I think ultimately uh, there's the, the biggest thing that, that describes whether or not a demo is good or not is if the audience 
um, can relate to it, right? If it's relatable and it resonates with the audience, right? If if they're seeing exactly how they would experience the solution, right, as if they were a customer, it's that much easier for them to to really understand the value that your solution is going to going to deliver to them. And we have to realize as sellers that most buyers are not sophisticated buyers. People don't buy software as part of their job description, right? And so most people aren't good at buying software. So the easier you can make it for them to really understand how their lives are going to be easier, the better. And I, and I think, you know, especially in today's day and age where, you know, almost every demo is remote, you know, engagement is the single biggest indicator, right? If you've got fantastic engagement with the audience on your demo, probably is more important than what you showed. Right versus if you showed everything they were looking to see, but you didn't hear a peep from them in an hour, you probably missed the bark somewhere. Right, so I, I think audience engagement and making sure that whatever you're delivering is relevant to them. Um, you know, you should never be del- delivering a generic demo. Is is probably the, the two biggest factors. You know, regarding like bias linked to that existing content, why is that happening right now? Yeah, so that is something we, we talked about a little bit earlier, right? And and I, I think what's amazing in the market right now for pre-sales with a lot more tools and solutions coming out for the space and, you know, organizations like Pre-Sales Collective really shining a light on the pre-sales function. There is a lot more content that's that's getting out there, which is amazing, right? It's, it's really improving everyone's game. It's making it a lot easier for everyone to learn more and get better enabled. I, I think the, the only caveat I would, and caution I would offer is that Everyone comes to the table with, you know, inherent and usually unconscious biases um, based on their experience, right? If I've only been in enterprise, I probably don't have a great idea about what mid-market looks like and vice versa. If I've only sold, you know, toolkit type solutions that need massive configuration and don't have any set application, then I'm not necessarily going to be great at selling a totally pre-baked out-of-the-box solution, right? And so I think that what we need to do as, as people absorbing pre-sales content that's being put out there on the, on the web and wherever it is, is recognize that there is no one size fits all to what works, what doesn't work, what a good pre-sales person is, what a bad pre-sales person is, what a good demo is, what a bad demo is. You really need to take everything into context, not only in terms of who you are and your experience, but the, the solution that you're selling, the organization you're working within, how you're working in sales, the particular opportunity you're selling into and that particular client, the buyers you're talking to, the particular stage in the sales cycle you're at, everything is going to be different, right? And nothing's going to apply universally. So I would just say, don't just assume that if I learn a best practice, you know, over here, it's going to just be universally applicable and, and, and allow me to solve every problem. Got it. Gary, we got the uh, drum roll. I wish I had that that little. You need the sound you know, effects. Yeah, yeah, the sound effects thing. Uh, <laughs> exactly, exactly. I'm glad. I'm glad you remember that. I I uh, mentioned that the other day to a friend of mine's little brother, and he was like, "What?" I was What's like, that? "Okay, yeah." I used to skip school actually and watch the uh, the VHS nice. tape on that. Uh, but anyways, sorry, mom, if you're listening. I didn't tell you that. Uh, but anyways, yeah, drum roll here. If you were to give one actionable tip to SEs out there around improving their demo, like tomorrow, something that they can apply and start to test the results, what would that be? Yeah, I'd say the the one, one that um, it's not an easy one to fix because it's really ingrained in our speaking habits is 
try and avoid first-person language. It, it's something that most of us do pretty universally, and that is use the word I or me and talk about ourselves when we're in our demo. Things like, oh, here's a feature that I really love, or you know, this is why I think this is really important for you to know. The audience doesn't care about your opinion. Right? They care about what's important to them. And so it, it, try to consciously think about when you're doing that. And there's a couple easy ways to fix that. Right? One is attribute stuff, you can use the word we, right? Because what we does is it actually attributes it to your entire organization. So it's not just about you as a person, it's about the entire organization. One thing that I, I remember one of my, uh, my SEs got out of a demo and at the end of this five hour POC, the client said, oh, can we just hire this individual? Cause he's amazing. And he thought that was the greatest thing in the world. And I said, it's amazing that they thought you were awesome. I said, but here's the problem. They think that they need you to be successful, right? And it's not about you, right? It's about them and making them understand they can own the solution. And so, you know, using we makes it more about the entire organization that I don't need that person on my implementation team in order to be successful. It can be anybody. The other way I do it that I, I coach my, my clients to do it is use customer instead. So instead of saying, I think this is important, say our customers tell us that they think this is important about our solution. or This is one of the things that their favorite part of the solution. And not only does that take you out of the equation, but it helps build credibility because it implies that there are other people out there that are using that particular feature or, or gaining value from it. Awesome. Carrie, thank you so much for your time. I know you're a, a busy guy. And so very, very grateful for the opportunity to chat pre-sales here today. If folks want to learn more about the pre-sales mastery programs or how they can hire you or learn uh, from your content, what are the best URLs or social handles to reach you? Yeah, best best way to reach me. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, but go to presalesmastery.com, and uh, and you can see you can find us there. Would love to would love to chat with anybody that's looking to upskill their demos games. Awesome. Uh, but George, thanks for having me. This is a pleasure. Absolutely, love to bring you back on and dig a little deeper into some specific topics. I know as you were talking, all these kind of light bulbs started to go off, and I was like, hmm, we can go there, we can go there. So uh, I'd love to get you back on the show when you have some time. And thank yeah. you again. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. You Bye. too.